Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. conference call. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mark Hitzchess, Vice President, Strategy, Planning, and Investor Relations. Mr. Hitzchess, please go ahead. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this conference call discussing our first quarter 2020 operational and financial results. On the call this morning from Gibson Energy are Steve Spaulding, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Sean Brown, Chief Financial Officer. Listeners are reminded that today's call refers to non-GAAP measures and forward-looking information. Descriptions and qualifications of such measures and information are set out in our continuous disclosure documents available on CDAR. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Steve. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I hope everyone on the call and their families are healthy and doing well. It would have been very difficult to predict the changes across the world at our last earnings call in February. COVID turning into a global pandemic and largely shutting down major parts of the world economy. This has created undoubtedly the most challenging environment in my 30 years in the industry. Our first concern is protecting our employees and contractors, their families, and the communities we're part of. At peak, we had 32 employees in self-isolation, primarily due to travel. Currently, that number is five. I'm pleased to say we have no confirmed COVID-19 cases within our organization today and we continue to safely operate all our assets. We began the transition of operating the business remotely in the second week of March, and all office work was moved to people's homes on March 17th. At our terminals, we split our control room staff into two separate groups and are operating from both our backup control room and primary control room to reduce interaction between staff, we put social distancing and other practices in place to ensure we can safely continue construction of the tankage at the top of the hill at Hardesty, as well as begin civil work for the DRU. At Moose Jaw, we plan to begin our annual turnaround next week, which we delayed a month and extended the time to ensure a safer environment for our employees and contractors on site. With the steps we've taken, we're confident in our ability to continue to operate our assets and our business. As a leadership team, our focus is not just business. As always, we are focused on the well-being of our employees. We have put an emphasis on communication and encouraging our employees to take care of themselves and their families. Overall, I believe the morale at Gibson remains very positive, given the circumstances, 
and we're working well as a team. One example of just that was our U.S. team. They started a head-shaving challenge for charity. It caught on through our internal chat, and within a couple of days, we were able to raise over $150,000 for charity focused on COVID relief, including both our CFO, Mr. Sean Brown, and our Chief Administration Officer, Mr. Sean Wilson, both shaved their head. This is a great reflection of our Gibson culture. From our business standpoint, Gibson today is a very resilient company. Through the changes we've made over the last three years, we've gone from bringing the most exposed to what I believe to be the best position within our peer group to weather this business environment. With our strategic shift to focus on crude oil infrastructure, we disposed of all of our commodity-sensitive businesses by transforming into an infrastructure company, heading into this downturn, our terminals were about 70% of our business and 80% of our cash flow were take or pay and stable fee-based. Only about 5% were those more sensitive midstream gathering assets. These are our pipelines and our small terminals in Canada and the pilot system in the U.S. We're also very strong financial position. Coming into the downturn, we had the lowest leverage to pay out in the peer group. The capital program is fully funded with a cushion. We have access to ample liquidity. And as I said before, this is a challenging time for our industry and our customers. But I have no doubt we have transformed this company to weather this storm. Though it might get lost in the focus on the present, the strength of our underlying business was visible in the first quarter. We set a new high for distributable cash flow on a continuing basis. More importantly, it was driven by infrastructure, which has grown over 30% in the last year. Sean will provide more color on the first quarter, our financial outlook, and our financial position. I would like to go into more detail than normal, but what we're seeing in our business through this downturn. At Hardesty, we're seeing a reduction in throughput volumes. This includes volumes coming in from the oil sands as well as conventional volume from our pipelines and our truck racks. We continue to monitor our customers' plans around shut-in. Hardesty and Edmonton outperformed our expectations in the last quarter. However, we do expect the producer shut-ins to impact margins across the next few quarters. When you combine the outperformance with the weakness, we expect to be right around what we budgeted for for the full year. We've done some sensitivity analysis around the impact of a reduction in third-party volume. and believe the impact will be modest. We estimate a 20%, a 25% decrease in oil sands receipts would equate to a $1.5 to $2 million reduction in segment profit per quarter. I would note today at our terminals, we've not had any customers approach us regarding a force majeure. Given how valuable storage is right now, I would be very surprised if a customer wanted to go that route. 
We have had a lot of short-term interest in storage. However, we are 100% leased. Based on our customers at our pipelines and small terminals, we do expect to see meaningful reductions in this part of the business. For context, this is about 5% of our EBITDA. Our Viking pipeline is underpinned by a percentage of take-or-pay contracts. Also, we see the Viking well is among the most economical in the basin. Hence, we currently expect shut-ins to be limited on the Viking pipeline. That said, we don't expect to see much drilling activity and volumes will continue to decline from current levels until activities recover. On the small terminals, which really help us drive conventional volumes to our main Hardesty and Edmonton terminals, we've seen a decrease in volumes and expect further decrease based on nomination. There is a potential for volumes on these small terminals and pipelines in Canada to be down as much as 50%. In the U.S., contributions from PIO was limited in the first quarter, and we expect volumes will increase over the balance of the year as several well and battery tie-ins are completed. We currently don't expect major shut-ins from our shippers. We do believe there will be weakness to the gathering business. However, it is expected that that will be offset by the upside in the marketing business around our assets. At Moose Jaw, the current environment is challenging. Sales volumes have decreased and margins are compressed. And as I've mentioned earlier, we will be having the extended turnaround this year to reduce COVID-related risk. As a result, we expect refined products to be especially weak in the second quarter and look for a recovery at some point in the second half, giving all the variables at play. It's very difficult to predict how and when markets for our products will normalize. Speaking to some of what we're seeing, many of our Roofing Flux customers have slowed down production under COVID-19 mitigation. Typically, Roofing Flux is driven by weather in the U.S., and we would expect demand to normalize in the second half of the year. We still expect we will see paving season this year. One upside to our view would be if we saw stimulus through infrastructure spending. We expect demand for our light ends will be tied to dislike crack spread. And all this, this is a part of our business where we need to remain agile to what we see in the product market. Right now, we are running the facility all out ahead of the turnaround to take advantage of inexpensive crews and fill in our tanks and tank car fleet with products. Looking out through the rest of 2020, we continue to expect refined products to remain profitable after all payments on its fixed costs. But the contribution to the marketing will be muted versus recent years. However, despite the expected contribution from refined products, we still anticipate the marketing segment to contribute over $100 million in segment profit this year, or the midpoint of our long-term run rate. We had a strong start in the first quarter, 
importantly, because we run a flat book, we did not get caught by the substantial shift downward in WTI. With the compression of spreads, most of the location and quality-based opportunities we saw in Q1 are no longer available. Instead, we're seeing opportunities created by significant volatility as well as steep contango and futures curve. With the tankage that marketing has available at Hardesty, Edmonton, and Moose Jaw, we will be looking for opportunities in this environment. We believe there still needs to be more shut-ins in North America to better align supply and demand as storage fills up. Our basis will be to remain conservative, even in the context of our strong position today. On OPEX and GNA, we've taken a hard look at our costs across the organization. Activity will decrease because of the shut-in on some of our assets. And we will delay certain work. In our review of GNA, we've identified certain costs as a savings as a result of working from home. Certainly, business travel has been impacted. We have identified around 10 to $15 million in cost savings from OPEX and GNA. We also need to maintain the integrity and safety of our assets. We thoroughly review maintenance capital, and we're able to reprioritize or defer a number of projects. Unfortunately, we had an unbudgeted project to replace a river crossing costing us $10 million. With these actions and the unbudgeted projects, we still expect to be within our 20 to $25 million target for the year. On the growth capital front, we remain fully funded. With a cushion on top of that, we have the liquidity to spend that capital within our governing financial principles. Still, we've sought to remove or de delay effectively all discretionary spending. Given the highly contracted nature of our capital program, there was limited room to cut within the $300 million budget. Most of the spend this year is on the DRU in the three tanks at Hardesty. As these projects are backstopped by high quality counterparties under long-term contract terms at very attractive rates of return, and given the demand for tankage right now, that's the type of capital you would choose to cut only if you did not have the means to spend it, and we certainly do. In the U.S., our growth capital program was weighted in the front end of the year. Capital spend from this point forward will strictly be to complete late-stage projects and fulfill contractual commitments. In all, we expect growth capital to be around or slightly below that $300 million figure. As far as the potential for sanctioning additional capital through the balance of the year, number of commercial decisions and discussions have been really paused. The exception would be at our terminals. We continue to be in discussions for additional tankage and supporting infrastructure and are optimistic to announce those this year. These are long-standing negotiations on detailed contract language. We're also getting interest in tankage at WING 
So these conversations are far more preliminary. In all, we're still expect to be within that two to four tankage range. At the DRU, we are, we are full go on the first 50,000 barrels a day with ConocoPhillips. The binding commercial agreements were finalized at the start of the year. We have all the regulatory approvals from the province, and we started pre-construction work at the site. Discussions to expand the initial phase to 100,000 barrels has paused in the current environment. Our expectation is those conversations will resume once we have visibility on how the recovery will look. That likely pushes the sanctioning of future phases into 2021. We are very comfortable with the returns on the initial phase. That capital is being deployed within our five to seven times EBITDA build multiple targets and also locked in long-term for both our HERP unit, unit train facility and our tankage. Given our conservative approach, it's going to be very hard to deploy capital unless it's backstopped by investment-grade counterparties under a long-term take-or-pay contract. Perhaps we will find some high-return projects, but overall, we expect very limited spend outside of our terminal unless activity recovers. One last thing I want to mention in my prepared remarks is our focus on ESG has not changed despite the downturn. ESG is a journey, and if you stop moving forward, we're going to keep up with the shifting social and market expectations. For this reason, we are very excited to issue our inaugural sustainability report. I would encourage everyone on this call to review the report to see the progress we've made. On this call, we're focusing on the operational and financial aspects of our business. But I hope you will join us in our virtual AGM later today where I will address sustainability in more detail. In summary, our first priority is to keep our people and their families safe and ensure the continued operation of our assets and our business. I'm very pleased with our response to COVID, especially the positive attitude and engagement we are seeing from our employees and contractors in this very difficult time. Our business is resilient. We certainly did not see this downturn coming, but as a result of the changes we've made to our business over the last three years, we are very well positioned. 70% of our EBITDA is from our Hardesty and Edmonton terminals. These are primarily long-term take-or-pay agreements with high-quality investment-grade counterparties. We remain confident that marketing will be over $100 million for 2020. Moose Jaw is expected to be weak, but we have multiple strategies that drive profitability in our marketing business. Our financial position is very strong. We are fully funded, and leverage and payout both remain below our long-term targets. I will now pass the call over to Sean. Sean. Thanks, Steve. Similar to Steve, I will look to focus my comments on where we are today and what we are seeing. But I think reviewing the quarter briefly will help ground expectations for the business over the next few quarters. 
As Steve mentioned, we had a very strong first quarter, setting new high-water marks for both the infrastructure segment profit and distributable cash flow from continuing operations. Looking into infrastructure in a bit more detail, segment profit of $98 million was a bit ahead of our expectations. A small part of that was at Hardesty, where we typically don't see a lot of variance in our earnings due to volumes, but this quarter we saw at least one customer move volumes well above normal levels, incurring additional throughput fees. We also saw some spot trains loaded at the HERC unit train facility. I would add that at our HERC unit train facility, we will continue to collect on our take or pay agreements in any environment, though we will likely see very minimal use of the facility until shut-in volumes are back online. While a minor impact to the quarter, we certainly saw a contribution from our pipelines and other terminals decline into March. And, as Steve mentioned, that will likely become more pronounced next quarter. We also had a positive non-cash adjustment related to the accounting of one of our equity investments, resulting in a benefit of approximately $4 million, though I would note that could reverse in the future. Turning to our expectations for the second quarter, when you take into account the items I just mentioned, as well as the extended turnaround at Mooshaw that Steve spoke to, our expectation is for infrastructure to come in between 80 and $85 million. If you think sequentially from the first quarter result of $98 million and adjust out the $4 million non-cash adjustment, include a roughly $5 million decrease at Mooshaw due to the turnaround, up to a $5 million decline at our pipelines and salt terminals, and potentially a small reduction at our terminals, that gets you to the 80 to $85 million figure. I would note, though, that the second quarter will likely be the low point for infrastructure, and we would expect a somewhat steady recovery through the balance of the year. Overall, we expect infrastructure will be at or around $360 million or modestly below that for the year. For context, that would put us at the low end of our original range of 360 to $380 million in infrastructure segment profit for the year. With the three tanks coming into service at the top of the hill in the fourth quarter, and assuming a recovery in volumes, we continue to expect infrastructure would reach a quarterly run rate of approximately $100 million exiting 2020, or $400 million on an annual basis. The marketing segment's first quarter result of $36 million was very much in line with our expectation of the upper end of a $30 to $40 million outlook. Most of the contribution was from the crude oil business, as that group was able to take advantage of various opportunities both before and after the turn in crude prices. At Moose Jaw, we had a reasonable start to the year, but as Steve spoke to, we saw a meaningful impact from decreased refined product demand in March. In terms of our outlook for marketing, right now, based on April results and expectations for May and June, we would expect to be at the upper end of our 20 to $30 million range for the second quarter, or potentially higher. To the extent that we move below the upper end of our range, it would be driven by timing, where the benefit of some of our positions would not be reflected in segment profit until the third or fourth quarter. From a full year perspective, as we sit here today, we would estimate that we will be at or above $100 million for the year, which would put us in the top half of our 80 
to $120 million long-term run rate. We are witnessing some unprecedented events in the market, and with that kind of volatility, there's a much greater probability that something we didn't factor into put into our outlook pushes us out of our range within a quarter. That said, we still want to provide as much visibility into our business as we can. When taking into account first quarter performance and combining both the updated infrastructure and marketing outlooks provided, you will see that we expect little to no impact to key metrics as a result of COVID-19 and the market downturn. This includes combined segment profit, adjusted EBITDA, distributable cash flow, and implicitly our payout and leverage ratios. Infrastructure is expected to be at the bottom end of our original range or modestly below, and marketing should come in at the upper end, resulting in little to no impact on a net basis. Returning to our results, G&A in the quarter was $9 million, which is effectively in line with our targeted $10 million a quarter run rate. As Steve mentioned, we are looking at all costs, but it's too early to assume a lower rate as, while there are clearly savings on items like travel, there are also additional costs in the COVID environment to facilitate working from home. Quickly working down to distributable cash flow on a sequential basis, the first quarter was $10 million above the fourth quarter of 2019. Replacement capital of $6 million in the first quarter was $4 million lower. This was offset by current taxes being $5 million higher. We also had $7 million of net non-cash changes related to adjustments for our equity investment and for foreign exchange included within segment profit. Given our distributable cash flow this quarter was $3 million above the first quarter of last year, the payout ratio remained flat to year-end at 62%, which is also well below our 70 to 80% target range. Similarly, our debt-to-adjusted EBITDA remained at 2.7 times well below our three to three and a half times target. Based on our current outlook and consistent with our expectation of a minimal impact from the downturn, we anticipate that both payout and leverage will remain below or within our target ranges. Recall that as part of our financial governing principles, we want to keep our leverage on an infrastructure only basis at or below four times and we target the dividend payout being less than 100% on an infrastructure-only basis. We expect to remain compliant with both of these governing financial principles through 2020, and based on sanctioned projects currently under construction, we'll add additional headroom in the fourth quarter when we place the three Phase 4 tanks into service at the top of the hill, as well as in mid-2021 when the DRU enters service. We also have access to significant liquidity that provides additional comfort in case the environment remains challenging much longer than currently expected. As the company continues to grow, and given management's conservative nature, in February, we completed an upsizing of the capacity of our credit facility to $750 million and extended the term into 2025. I would note that this increase was completed pre-pandemic and, as such, was done at normal course terms and conditions and does not reflect the premium necessary for some of the liquidity facilities being completed in this market. At the end of the quarter, we are only $50 million drawn on the facility with $55 million in cash in the balance sheet. Effectively, we have the full $750 million credit facility 
available to make sure we have ample liquidity and flexibility to fund our capital program without having to unduly rely on external capital at times that might not be optimal. In addition to our $750 million credit facility, we have two bilateral demand letter of credit facilities totaling $150 million. At the end of the quarter, we had issued letters of credit totaling $35 million, implying that our total available liquidity, inclusive of these facilities, was closer to $900 million. Speaking to another one of our financial governing principles, you've often heard me say that remaining fully funded is paramount to us. We came into 2020 with the ability to fund over $400 million in growth capital, assuming the $80 to $120 million long-term marketing run rate. Given our outlook for capital in 2020 of about $300 million or lower, we'll likely carry out some funding capacity into 2021. While it may have appeared conservative only a few months ago, our focus on our balance sheet, our adherence to our governing financial principles, and our discipline around capital allocation has positioned us very defensively coming into this downturn. We are very pleased to be in such a position, but it was a lot of hard work to get here. For that reason, we're going to be very prudent through this downturn. We often get the question of whether we will be looking for an opportunistic acquisition or to buy back stock. We believe that liquidity and financial flexibility are very valuable in this environment and will remain cautious. Another major benefit resulting from disposing of the non-core businesses, and with the terminals now being the vast majority of our cash flow, is that we have dramatically improved our counterparty profile. Just three to four years ago, given our business mix at the time, we had much higher exposure to smaller, non-investment-grade counterparties who, in general, are much more impacted to changes in commodity prices. With Gibson's focus on crude oil infrastructure, and more specifically our core terminals business, this counterparty profile has dramatically improved, with fully 90% of our terminals' counterparties being investment-grade. Even with that in mind, Given the heightened risk environment, it's very important to be as proactive as possible to identify potential risks before they become a problem and address them, whether that's by securing AR insurance, requesting LCs, requiring payment up front, or absent an alternative, making the decision to not do business with the counterparty. Given our consistent focus on our balance sheet, we are also very pleased that DBRS confirmed our investment-grade rating and stable outlook last week. As you would have read in the report, they pointed to the rating being supported by our stable, contracted cash flows from infrastructure assets, and our strong competitive position. In summary, we remain in a very solid financial position and are very well positioned to weather this market downturn. While many folks likely won't look into the first quarter results in detail, they do illustrate the strength of our underlying business. As we look into the second quarter, we do expect weakness in some smaller parts of our business, but overall, we expect that the impact will be relatively modest. We expect that on a full-year basis, there will be little to no impact to key metrics, including adjusted EBITDA, distributable cash flow, leverage, and payout. We continue to check all the boxes on our governing financial principles, and we expect that to continue through 2020. Payout and leverage will remain below target levels, including our infrastructure-only targets, and we remain fully funded for all our sanctioned capital. 
These are certainly difficult times for our industry and our customers, and there remains a lot of uncertainty on how the next few months will play out. There are many unknowns we are still looking to better understand around parts of our business, but know that our focus will be continuing to be as transparent as we can with our investors, and above all that, know that Gibson is on very solid footing. At this point, I will turn the call over to the operator to open it up for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question at this time, please press the star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from a line of Jeremy tonight with J.P. Morgan. Your line is now open. Good morning. I just wanted to touch on the uh, contango uh, element to the market and wanted to see, um, you know, what benefits that could provide for Gibson. I think you noted that all of your storage is contracted, but I believe historically a certain amount was uh, kept, uh, it was contracted internally with the marketing arm to be used for operational purposes when there's turnaround. So just wanted to get a sense for what, uh, you know, that could look like if there's opportunity there or other opportunities in, in this market around, you know, these types of volatility. Good morning, Jeremy. This is Steve. Uh, yes. When it comes to the Contango opportunity, um, you get a look at Moose Jaw. I mean, Moose Jaw has product tanks, and it actually has uh, crude, crude speed tanks. So there is, you know, there's probably six to 700,000 barrels of just product storage at Moose Jaw itself. Uh, and then we do have storage at we do have storage at Hardesty that is uh, that is contracted to our market organization, but it is fairly minimal. But um, there certainly is and has been opportunities to collect some of that contango, and uh, we expect that contango to kind of last uh, really across the next couple of quarters. Got it. That's helpful. Thanks. Um, and then just wanted to kind of um, you know turn towards the broader marketplace right now. And Steve, as you well know, uh, in the recent uh, past here, Buckeye was acquired by private equity at about 11.5 times EV to EBITDA. Um, and on street numbers, it appears Gibson is trading well below that. And then if I think about Williams, who is concerned with regards to uh, being approached and uh, being acquired at, at what they viewed as depressed levels, and so that drove them um, to, to issue, uh, you know, certain protective measures at that point. I was just wondering if you could comment on the dynamics that you see in the market right now, um, and especially with regards to those, uh, those two data points. Uh, Jeremy, um, I'll comment at first, and I'll turn it over to Sean, but, uh, I mean, our job is to, is to maximize our shareholder return. And in the end, you know, right now we're, we think we're doing that with our stable cash flow, with our quality of customers. Uh, you know, how the actual market looks at us, I mean, uh, whether or not we're undervalued or valued, we're valued at where we are today. Uh, Sean? Yeah, no, thanks for that, Steve. I think I wouldn't really add uh, all that much to that answer. I think if you think of both those data points, I mean, it's a question, it's a, 
we get asked that question on both sides. Are we worried about somebody being opportunistic regarding us, or you know, would we potentially be opportunistic given relative share price performance? And I guess Steve said, you know, the management team, our job is try and maximize value for shareholders, and that's through you know executing on a strategy that we think that works. Um, you know, right now we don't have an intent to put in place a poison pill or anything like that. Uh, it, that's what you're referring to. Uh, you know, but certainly would view at, at share prices uh, as we sit today, you know, that we are undervalued. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, our, our job is to maximize value to shareholders, and that's through delivering our strategy. That makes sense. Uh, thanks for all the color this morning. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Our next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, First question on the DRU. Just want to get a sense of how you're thinking about the longer-term competitive, competitiveness of a DRU in a Alberta, which could be uh, uh, having three new egress pipelines being Line 3, Keystone, and Trans Mountain. So, uh, Rob, to Steve, um, you know, we've looked at the economics. Uh, and in a normal market, when condensate's trading uh, at or above WTI, uh, the, the competitiveness as far as price is head-to-head -head with the, the pipeline transport fees. So it, it can be competitive. Uh, it is an alternative. Um, you know, if um, – and it is a, it's, it's a way to actually get neat bitumen to, to refineries. Uh, which is more valuable than a deal bit. Um, and then you've got to think that if those lines do go forward, that's positive for us too because then we build tankage. We'll build tankage at Edmonton if Trans Mountain moves forward, and we'll build tankage at Hardesty if KXL moves forward. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, and then maybe just a clarification on the Q2 other infrastructure outlook. If I understand correctly, and if we're going to kind of walk from Q1 into Q2, uh, you did $12 million in Q1, then less of $5 million outage at, Hardis, or at Moose Jaw, uh, less the $4 million one-time item, and then less $5 million of uh, other infrastructure. That would bring you into negative EBITDA, though. So, you know, could we see, I guess, the costs of Moose Jaw outweigh the, um, outweigh the revenues there? And I guess, to a lesser extent, does that bring you to almost you know, break even on those smaller pipes? Overall, we'll make money on the, we'll make money on the smaller pipes when it looks at Moose Jaw. I mean, it's going to be down six weeks uh, in the quarter, uh, and when we looked at it. With the uh, producer services and Moose Jaw itself, uh, it, it, it is going to be positive for the quarter. Um, maybe Sean, you, you can go through the, the kind of the walking down on the EBITDA a little bit more detail. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rob, can you walk through? I think it was just sequentially on the infrastructure guides. Is that yeah? Is on, that, yeah, on the other question? infrastructure. It seemed like most of the weakness in yeah. Q2 will be in in other. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, Steve talked about it in his prepared remarks. If you walk down to the 98 we had in the first quarter, you take out the $4 million equity adjustment, which we highlighted, it gets you to 94. 
given the extended turnaround at Moose Jaw, you know, the OPEX and around that will be elevated this quarter. So take out roughly five for Moose Jaw. Uh, and so that would take you down to 89. And then, you know, Steve talked about on our pure terminals business, probably one and a half to $2 million impact. You know, that takes you down to the circa, you know, call it 87, 88. And then the impact on the small terminals business would get you into that sort of 80 to 85 number. So if you assume, you know, call it a $3 million impact there, you're in, you know, 83, 84, that sort of range. All right. Appreciate the color. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Great. Thank you. Um, maybe I can scroll down into to marketing to start. So you had the $36 million in Q1, and then if you just look at the guide for Q2, um, that kind of puts you somewhere in around the $65, $66 million range for the first half. And, and then based on the annual guidance, I guess the lower end at that 100 would be in the mid-30s. Um, so that would put the, the second half quarterly run rate well, south of 20, somewhere 15 to $20 million. And I'm just wondering, can you talk about you know, that range versus the low end of that 80 to $120 million kind of long-term, you know, what are some of the, the movements, why, you know, the second half would kind of put you in that, that or, uh, or below the low end? Yes, Robert. Um, this is Steve. Um, you know, we said 100 plus, um, and uh, that means that you would have the 20 in the in the following quarters or, or a little less than 20 in the following third and fourth quarters. Um, I think we're being conservative there. Uh, you know, we, we haven't had a 20 quarter in a while, but this is a very uh, volatile market. So we're trying to be conservative in our approach, which I believe we always have really in the out month quarters of our marketing business. So I guess maybe just Steve, with that conservatism, I, I know this was before your time, but I'm just wondering, can you maybe just frame what you're seeing in the current environment and your current business or your current marketing kind of organizational setup versus what we would have seen in, in 2016 and 2017 when, you know, those years on, on that IFRS-adjusted basis was the lower end of, of the range? Yeah, I mean, Robert, I really – don't know exactly what we did in in 16 and 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 before I showed up in 17. Uh, I don't. The, their marketing strategies were considerably different than ours today, um, and the team was considerably different than where we are today. You know, when you look at those strategies today, you know we've we've been able to make money as the market falls, as the market goes up, the spreads widen. Uh, so we really and when, and I talked about it in the in my prepared remarks is that really we use a multiple of uh, strategies, marketing strategies, uh, every quarter sometimes. And um, you know, I think we're, we do a very good job of running a flat book, which means that, uh, you know, we gave you a kind of the estimate of $35 million in the quarter. In December, market fell from $55 to the low teens, and we still made that $35 million. So, as you can see, we have a lot of discipline in what we do. So I guess maybe just to finish on marketing, if you know if there isn't a material improvement in, in kind of the environment, you still have that confidence. Say if we looked at just say 2021 or some sort of indicative 12-month you know, period, 
that the uh, the low end of that range, or there's you know, some confidence that that's uh, very much an achievable number in in the current environment. I mean, you know, absolute price has an impact, and, and it does it does uh, do some compression in the in your spreads, uh, but. We believe, you know, refined products will respond first uh, with demand, and we believe there will be uh, government st stimulus on infrastructure, which will drive demand for asphalt. Um, and then if you do keep weak, there is always the internal optimist, which means that you do have the opportunity for contango plays. Got it. Um, and then if I can just finish with, with Moose Jaw. Um, just making sure I'm understanding all the different pieces. So you highlighted the $5 million that's going to be booked into infrastructure in, in the second quarter. Um, I think that's just the, the intercorporate transfer. But when you think about the extension of the outage, I'm not sure, can you, are you able to quantify what extending that outage is going to cost, whether it's you know hard dollars or lost revenues? And just how do you see that playing out in terms of, of the actual um, the impact on marketing versus state budgets? Well, I mean, we're running it full out right now. Uh, so, and we're actually filling up all of our storage right now at the facility. Um, a lot of the product we 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 we're we're, we're actually filling it up is uh, extremely inexpensive crude oil. Uh, and that may have been that's because of some of the hedging that we did on the WCS, the WTI spread, and also just locking in kind of an absolute price on the purchase. So we really like the the price of the barrel that we put that we're putting in storage right now. Uh, and so we actually think we'll have a pretty strong third quarter as we start to move that product into the market. Got it. And if there's not a resumption or pick up in, in demand on the refined product side, basically just holding the cheap inventory and, and the sell-through will happen. If it spills into Q4, it spills into Q4. Is that kind of the way to think about it? Yes, and, and you know, we don't have to run it all out. Uh, so we can pull it back some if we don't find the market for our product. We have very specialty products, so uh, uh, roofing blocks, you know, which is not really uh, impacted by uh, COVID, that's a, that's a weather-driven, and then, that, you know, the asphalt, which um, which is, you know, we believe will be driven by stimulus bills, and then our other is really kind of a distillate that we sell. Um, uh, the distillate probably will be weak, uh, the, weak of, the weaker of those three products. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis with TD Securities. Your line is now open. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can uh, help us understand um, some of the cost savings, Steve, that you um, uh, have identified, the 10 to 15 million. I'm wondering how much of that might be permanent uh, versus temporary. Um, for example, I guess the travel costs could be quite significant, and those would presumably come back um, next year. But can you comment on the nature of those cost savings and, um, again, how much is, uh, is temporary versus uh, a permanent uh, reduction in costs? Uh, yes, Linda. Um, I would say almost all of it is uh, on a temporal basis. Uh, some of it is volume-driven, so as uh, volume reduces at our terminals, uh, or small pipelines, we have we have reduced power demand. 
Um, the other would be, um, you know, we did talk about expenses and travel expenses. We were actually, we looked at our April bill, and it was down 80% uh, versus the March bill. So the travel is obviously, but that is temporal. Um, and many of the activities, uh, many of the, of the cost savings uh, that our ops group put together were bottom up from the field. Uh, but eventually you need to make these, eventually you need to spend these dollars uh, down the road at some time. But I do, but it is somewhat temporal uh, during the event. Linda. Okay, thank you. And um, you, you mentioned um, ESG, uh, the process is a, a journey. Um, congratulations on your first report. I'm wondering how you might use your findings um, in, in, in launching this first report to evolve the business. Are there any opportunities to um, um, leverage uh, your learnings to um, uh, identify ways to do business differently or to, to save costs further, or were there any surprises, positive and negative, uh, that you found um, as, you, as you prepared this uh, first report? Yeah, you know, it wasn't a journey, but, you know, we're starting to see ESG throughout the organization. We're starting to see, you know, when we're doing capital projects, questions come from the board concerning ESG. You know, we're very excited about our diversity program. Uh, you know, we hired 25 uh, summer students this year. Uh, those 25 summer students, I believe almost, I believe 70% of the summer students were female, and that includes a real focus on operations and engineering where we're trying to increase our uh, diversity. Uh, on our new hires in ops and engineering, over 70% have been diverse candidates. So. On the diversity side, we're really seeing a, a step change. Um, and you can kind of see those in the numbers over the last three years. Um, then when you look at Moose Jaw, you know, last year we put on the expansion at Moose Jaw where we expanded the, the facility 30%. And in that 30% expansion, we did that without any additional heat. And we will continue to look at Moose Jaw and how do we improve really our carbon footprint at Moose Jaw. And we think there's significant opportunities to continue to improve our, our uh, per barrel carbon footprint there at Moose Jaw. And then on governance, you know, we have the we have uh, we put a diversity uh, policy in place uh, with the board, and we currently have uh, two diversity representatives there on the board. So, um, and hopefully we'll have more as we move forward, both in both in the both in our assets and operations and across our organization. So we're excited about what's going on at Gibson Energy as far as ESG. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny with National Bank Financial. Your line is now open. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just starting on the marketing here. Looks like there was a $25.7 million write-down of inventories in Q1. Can you just confirm that that expense was included in your Q1 adjusted EBITDA number and maybe how that inventory write down might be locking in your marketing guidance for Q2. You know, I'm going to let Sean do that one because it has to do with accounting. So, uh, but uh, it definitely was taken into account. So go ahead, Sean. 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was in our number. I mean, it was, you know, given the volatility in the market, it was, you know, a bit of a higher rate than that we would have seen uh, in other quarters. But I think the one thing I would note uh, on the write down that, you know, Steve talked about his prepared remarks about us running a flat book, you know, that was fully hedged inventory. So you have actually seen, you know, the offsetting financial hedges show up and, you know, profit in segment profit within the marketing business in the quarter. And so, you, you know, I wouldn't really think about that. So we wrote down inventory. We had offsetting hedges for that inventory. Um, and, you know, we'll move that forward. But that would have been any sort of mark-to-market we had would be incorporated in sort of our guidance that we provided that, you know, upper end of the 20 to 30 or higher for Q2. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And then on the terminals business, um, I appreciate the sensitivity to you know oil sands volumes. Also wondering, there was an article out yesterday just surrounding Enbridge looking to offer up more than I think two million barrels of storage capacity on the main line. Any thoughts on how this temporary form of storage on the main line might further impact your terminals or marketing business, if at all? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll address that. Um, we see really no impact. I mean, this is a great thing that uh, Enbridge is doing to provide the storage to customers. You know, when you look at our storage, it's really not built for the contango play. Most of our storage for our customers is operational storage. So these are those 10-year contracts uh, with three turns per month. Um, they may have a little bit of additional storage. You know, if they if they cut 20%, they'll have a little bit more contango opportunity. But Overall, our storage is not uh, in that commodity-based uh, market. We don't we don't have any storage to lease out, so you know we can't benefit uh, additional from from this other this opportunity other than extending contracts or building more tankage down the road. Okay, thanks for that. Um, and then, Sean, just on the uh, debentures, I know it's still over a year out, but you know, should the the uh, debentures not convert to equity when they mature next July, would you look to refi the uh, debentures or just put the $100 million on your bank lines? And then maybe just an update on how the math is looking um, around potentially calling the 2024s anytime soon. Yep. Thanks for that, Pat. I, I mean, two questions there. I think, as you know, um, you know, the conversion price in our debentures is call it 21 like 2165 or 21 and change. Um, and so uh, I think certainly by the time that conversion comes up, you know, our sincere hope is that, you know, we've come through some of this pandemic and those are in the money. And so it makes the actual conversion decision, you know, relatively easy because even if we call them, I suspect people would convert. Uh, to the extent that they're not in the money, uh, you, you know, my bias as we sit here today, you know, given our ample liquidity would be just to put it on our bank line. Uh, you know, as we talked about in our prepared remarks, recently increased our bank facility to 750 uh, from 560, you know, have 150 of bilats, which I would highlight, uh, and we didn't have this in the prepared remarks, but those bilats are actually available for general corporate purposes as well. So the, that is true liquidity that we have. Um, so, you know, to the extent that they're not in the money, uh, would likely look to put it on. Uh, our bank facility, just given the amount of liquidity we have, um, but but still, we'll we'll evaluate that as we move forward. With respect to the 2024 notes, 
you know, we certainly would have been looking to potentially refi those pre-pandemic. Um, you know, even with the make hole, that would have been uh, NPV positive to the company. Given what's happened to credit spreads, you know, post-pandemic, that's no longer economic to do so. You know, as hopefully we return to a normal, more normal environment here uh, and coupons come back down to the extent that that does turn back into an MPV positive trade, that's, you know, something we'd love to explore, certainly. But, but as we sit here today, you know, we're still, you know, we still have a little bit of a way to go before, you know, we see enough of a recovery in what, you know, coupons would be before that turns economic. Okay, that is perfect. And then just last one for me, guys, housekeeping item, but looks like the, uh, the $30 million sale of the Edmonton field office to TriMac has been delayed here into Q2. Do you see any risk that this won't close at all now, just given everything that's happened, or at least continue to be pushed out until things get back to normal? Sean, uh, why don't you take that one? Yep, yep. No, no, we actually do not. I mean, the initial intention, I think we had late Q1. It was actually in around April. Uh, you know, now it looks like it'll be late Q2. But, no, we, we've been in regular dialogue with uh, TriMac around acquisition, that field office. Uh, they've actually moved in. That's their new head office from a trucking perspective uh, in Edmonton. You know, still very much in their plans, you know, uh, and all – Dialogue and intention uh, is that they will look to close that, and we'd expect that late in the quarter. So absolutely no change uh, in our viewpoint and would expect uh, that we receive those funds in the second quarter. Okay, that's great. Uh, appreciate all the color, and uh, keep well, guys. Our next question comes from Andrew Kusky with Credit Suisse. Your line is now open. Thank you. Good morning. I, I think your comments throughout the call really echo how conservatively you are running the business. But with all the volatility we saw in the quarter and really for the year to date, could you just give us maybe a bit of color on how your risk management activities held up? You know, did you hit any limits? Uh, where anything Was anything breached or did everything really perform as you expected? Andrew, um, good morning. Um, I would say, you know, we reached some bar limits, but the bar limits that we reached uh, were really generally on the positive side uh, as our positions uh, uh, um, hit on the positive upside of the bar. Uh, our bar calculations were maybe a hair flawed, but we're looking into that. But overall, uh, very tight controls. Um, and um, as you can see, you know, what I explained really in the, in the call, uh, and what we've talked about really on the inventory, you know, we had inventory in December of last year, uh, or 2019, priced at 50 and $60. We wrote that down all the way down to the low teens, yet we still, and that was on the marketing books, yet we still had that 35 to $36 million marketing uh, earnings. And that just shows that discipline in our hedging policies. Um, you know, we really don't take a lot of risk. We weren't involved in the last two days of close because we always, if we're rolling a position, we never roll a position on the last two days of the cycle. So uh, that's just a rule of ours. So you can see we have multiple, uh, you know, and I'm in constant conversations, you know, with our, with our head of marketing really on a daily basis about where we are and what we're doing. 
Okay, that's great. And I guess another element of the conservative nature, and you know, I think, Sean, you touched upon this, just the value of the liquidity that you have and your liquidity position being really you know, greater than what you see in a normal market environment. And I, I guess the, the implication of all of this is you've, you've, you value the liquidity more, but if you were to find something attractive in the market, you know, the returns on any prospective acquisition or capital deployment would just have to be much greater than normal. In a, in a normal market. Is that true? Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, I mean, again, I think our prepared remarks are fairly clear, and I think our messaging has been quite clear throughout. You know, it, this environment, I think, uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, we have been comforted by the fact that we can get on every call with investors uh, and stakeholders and talk about the defensive characteristics we have. Um, you know, we're really not looking to do anything to sacrifice those defensive characteristics, and liquidity is one of them. Uh, so, I mean, as we sit here today, you know, I wouldn't say that acquisitions are, you know, a significant focus of this management team. You know, remaining defensive and nimble in this environment really would be. I mean, to the extent that there's something absolutely optimistic, I mean, of course, we would always look at it. But, again, you know, I would probably refocus more on our focus on remaining defensive uh, as we continue to move through this pandemic. Okay, that's great. Very much appreciated. Stay safe. Our next question comes from Ben Pham with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Okay, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, had a question on uh, your customers' uh, resident days at the tank. I'm wondering if you have a sense of, of where that will go once you add uh, the three tanks late this year. Good morning, Ben. Can you restate that one more time? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I was, I was wondering when you add the, the three tanks this year, if you have a, a sense of uh, what the residence day is going to be relative to that 10-day average you've seen in, in the past. Yeah, so... Um, on the tanks that we did that we did the long-term leases on, well, of course, one is marketing tanks that'll come on, uh, and that's really one of the first marketing leases or builds that we've ever done. And then the other is with a large U.S. refiner, uh, and 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 then another one is a, really a marketing organization. Uh, so, I would say the overall residence time uh, will be. Um, those 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 will not have the normal residence times uh, um, that we've seen from the oil sands producers. So they'll be used probably potentially more. Uh, it would be used differently than the operational storage. Okay, um, sorry about that. But I was I was thinking more the and maybe it's just not an easy easy quantification to get. I was, I was wondering more the overall industry days on average that you're seeing because you look at the past couple of years it seems to be more folks the residence days have been underestimated in terms of what's what's needed in the market so that's been driving a lot of the tank so just just trying to get a sense of of where that that's going relative to the historical norms well you know we uh, i mean in this time there is more residence time because the producers have cut so on a go-forward basis, uh, I think, again, storage and the importance of storage become, becomes even more uh, pronounced to, to our customers. And so they're, 
there will be the opportunity to continue to discuss additional storage uh, with numerous of our, of our existing customers at the facility. Okay. And maybe the, my second question is maybe for, for Sean, some of the numbers around the infrastructure, run rate, and and I wanted to clarify, I, I believe there's an 80 million number that was mentioned. Is that is that more the worst case scenario that you're contemplating in, in that segment? Thanks, Ben. I, I mean, I think we walked uh, in one of the earlier calls, we walked it down. I mean, uh, you, you know, the challenge whenever you put out a range is how precise do you want to be? Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure we felt like a range of like 83 to 87 uh, made a lot of sense. But again, you know, perhaps the easier way to answer that is to walk you down, uh, as I did earlier, uh, from the number. And I think, you know, if you, um, if you listen to the remark I gave earlier, probably the 80 is not a number that we would necessarily expect. But I mean, again, 98Q1 infrastructure segment profit, you take off four uh, for the equity pickup. So that gets you to 94 on a recurring basis. Uh, take out five from there uh, for Ushda, the sort of OPEX that we normally see, plus some additional OPEX from the turnaround that gets you to 89. And then from there, you take off you know, call it probably circa five from the, both the small terminals, and, you know, that would be inclusive of the one and a half to two that Steve talked about at our main terminal business, and that gets you to sort of the high end of that 80 to 85. So, you know, I, I don't think we'd expect that 80, certainly, uh, and if you walk down sequentially like I did, it would get you to the higher end of that 80 to 85. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. Okay, no, it's yeah, it, it absolutely does, Sean, and, and, and I'm sorry for having you have to repeat it three times. I wasn't asking that. It just it just sounded like the last commentary was 85 with the moose jaw outage. So then going to Q3, it should be going up. That's actually within 90. So I just I just wanted to square that. Plus 80, 85 million plus Q1 doesn't really add up to 360. So I was just more getting an, an additional clarification on that. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we also we also did say that we expect Q2 to be, you know, absolutely the low for the year. But, I mean, even if you, you know, implicit, you know, in that, and I think it is important that, you know, we did confirm that 360 because just pure math tells you, you know, if we had 98 in the first quarter, 85 in the second quarter, you know, to get to that 360, it assumes we're at, you know, 88 and a half for both Q3 and Q4. So just implicit in the numbers we provided, we certainly expect, uh, you know, some measure of recovery. And, uh, you know, not only from Moose Jaw, but, I mean, certainly that Moose Jaw turnaround won't extend into Q3. Okay. And my, my last one, same topic, the, the $100 million next year, does that include the DRU contribution in, in second half? Uh, no, it would not. I mean, if you think about, uh, it, we had said that as we exit Q4, we expect to be run rating 100 billion. So really, that would be taking sort of existing assets right now and adding the three tanks we're going to put into service uh, in Q4. Okay, so so it's likely if if you DU comes comes in, ter in in service on time, which which is likely, it, it's your full year is likely more than 400 million if everything uh, goes to to your budget. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. okay.
Right. Thanks very much, guys. Our next question comes from Robert Catelier with CIBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking the time to go through those more uh, detailed uh, updates. Uh, in your infrastructure uh, comments, I think in the MDNA uh, uh, on the uh, your presentation materials, I think there was a comment about uh, in getting that 360 uh, some type of volume recovery. So I'm wondering what uh, what you see in terms of the pace of the recovery. And maybe on a uh, related question, how long do you think it will take to get back to 2019 levels of uh, oil demand? Yeah, I'll, uh, thank you, Robert. Good morning. Um, so the, when we did our forecasting, uh, we looked really for we looked at the, the economies, the North American economy and the world economies, to kind of restart uh, on a June 1st time frame. And with that, we we, we so we really kept the second quarter uh, as far as impacted by volumes in our facilities still impacted in the second and the third quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, we started to grow the volumes back as demand started to come back online. Um, you know, and kind of walking us back up is real important. You know, so if we're at the 85 and you put the $5 million on uh, from Moose Jaw, and then as you volume recovery, you come on, and then as those three tanks come on, you have additional revenue that gets us that 400 run rate in the fourth quarter on equity. Uh, as far as full recovery of of crude oil, you know, I don't know. I think that might still be two years out, two probably two years out from full recovery up into, you know, where we were approaching almost 100 million a day in total production. Uh, but during that time, we, we think, you know, we'll see significant decline. So you, we think refined products demand will ramp up quicker uh, but we think crude, you know, we, we believe crude will remain relatively uh, depressed over the next year or two and then move up fairly quickly uh, once you cross that supply and demand and you need that additional drilling to come on. So wherever that crossover is, you'll see a pretty quick spike in pricing because I don't think the U.S. will respond as quickly this time. Okay, that's uh, that's helpful. Uh, throughout your commentary uh, today, um, I noticed it was a little little bit conservative at times, but uh, in the big picture, uh, it, it sounds like you do have um, some excess funding capacity and you're being pragmatic about the progress on new growth projects, um, adding to your capital spending roster. So uh, with that, I'm wondering if there's a, an opportunity or an appetite to deploy more capital into the marketing segment if you uh, expect the pace of new projects to, uh, uh, you know, to reflect the market reality and be a bit slower. You know, we've, I don't see that happening right now. I don't, uh, you know, unless there, we see a, a, a real opportunity. Uh, when it comes to those uh, high, higher volatile earnings, we do use a, uh, a higher rate of return requirement. Generally, you know, in the plus 20% rate of return for commodity-based driven uh, opportunities. Um, we do some of those every year, like the Moose Jaw expansion would been been one of those, you know, where it was a one to three times uh, uh, payback. Uh, there may be additional opportunities at Moose Jaw. Uh, there may be some small connections and small 
small projects with Hardesty and Edmonton, but we're talking relatively small projects uh, in the end. Not, not nothing that can actually drive up our uh, total capital spend by any significance. Robert. Okay, and then just my uh, my final question here uh, might be early days still, but what has the collection experience been recently? Um, any negative trends in that debts? I think particularly at uh, you know in the U.S. I can address that, but also I'll let uh, Sean uh, kind of. Um, kind of clean this up but um you know our credit committee we've become quite active uh in early march as this uh as, as the event started to unfold um bad debts uh you know we we've moved we really uh went there's really on the refined product side where we're selling to the smaller uh where we're selling to you know smaller players with uh potential uh credit issues, and with that, we went to AR insurance or prepays. So right now, we're, we're in a very good position, uh, really, on those sales of our refined products. We feel very comfortable where we are. Uh, if, if a default did occur, um, we would be protected, but I'll turn it over to Sean. Yeah, no, I think you covered the vast majority, but I mean, we really haven't seen any increase in our aging. Uh, you know, Steve noted, uh, we have taken an extremely close look, uh, you know, at all receivables. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that's entirely abnormal. Um, you, you know, I think I'd be more concerned if we said, you know, that, that things have increased a ton. But, I mean, in, in this environment, you can only be too safe. Um, and we have reviewed everything multiple times, uh, it, you know, and at a high level have really seen no increase in our aging. Uh, or really in, you know, what we would think the risk there of, of our AR. Okay, thanks, everyone. I'm showing no further questions in queue at this time. I'd like to turn the call back to Mr. Hitzchess for closing remarks. Thanks, operator. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on our first quarter 2020 conference call. Uh, again, I would like to note we have made certain supplementary information available on our website at gibsonenergy.com. I would also remind everyone that we will be holding our virtual AGM today later at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. The details are on our website and in the press release, and participants are encouraged to register for the live audio webcast at least 10 minutes prior to the presentation start time. Hope you're able to join us. Lastly, if you have any further questions, please do reach out to us at investor.relations at gibsonenergy.com. Hope you have a great day, uh, and stay healthy. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.